Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. Welcome to those who are returning to College Church after the summer. Uh, it's good to have you back with us. Uh, I was, uh, I joked last week, those of you who weren't here last week, I'll say the same joke again. And if you were here last week, you could laugh again. That'd be great. Um, I, I was in England uh, over the summer for a little bit, relearning how to speak. That was the joke. I did it last week, do it again. So, uh, And various things. Anyway, it's good to be back, and we're in Romans. We've got to chapter 3, which is a remarkably fast pace, I believe. Uh, Lloyd-Jones would be astonished at how quickly we are moving. Uh, anyway, we've got to Romans chapter 3. And you'll find it in, your, in the Pew Bibles, in the Church Bibles, on page 941, I think. They will be either under the Pew Rack or in the Pew Rack, and uh, I'll read it for us in just a moment as well. And so it's a pretty brief couple of verses. You'll probably be able to memorize them by the end of the time uh, this morning. Let me just pray as we turn now to God's Word. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we come now to this Word, that you, by your Spirit, and we Lord, we depend upon you. Here we are gathered in this place, and we want to enjoy being together. We want to enjoy you. We want to worship you. We want to clearly understand what it is that you are saying through your word. And we want to be transformed by that. For all this, Lord, we need the power of your Holy Spirit. I cannot do it. We cannot do it. Here's your word. And we pray that uh, by your Spirit, it will live to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So you've got the Bible in front of you. And as you glance down at it, let me just introduce it for us in this this kind of way. There are many challenges of being a preacher. One of them is just believing that people are actually going to listen to what you've got to say, which is, is a challenge. The other challenge is you end up marrying lots of people. I don't mean literally, um, but you do. You know, I've just got one wife, by the way, not a Mormon, one wife. Uh, did I just say that? I'm so sorry. Um, and uh, so I want to tell you a story about a wedding. It'll introduce this passage. And the challenge, of course, of this passage is that it's so familiar. Weddings, too, are familiar. But this was a rather different wedding. I was preaching away, and I felt some sort of wind in my sails, you know, this sense of kind of unction, you know, that felt like I was really connecting. And I looked uh, over to the left, the groom on one side, the bride on the other, of course, and I looked to the left, and there was the groom, and he was beginning to sway. I thought, well, he's really getting the rhythm. <laughs> and uh, so I carried on preaching. And then I happened to glance out of my eye one more time, which is a good thing, because he actually fell over. And I caught him just before he hit the ground. This was the most unusual wedding I've ever done. You know, usually the groom doesn't actually get knocked over. Um, but there he was, lying on the floor. And the funny thing was that his bride-to-be was actually quite an eminent physician, a, a doctor, and she came from a family where it seemed like they were all doctors, you know, all the cousins, all the uncles, everyone was a doctor. So before long, this poor man was 
practically having open heart surgery on the, sp- <laughs> on the spot. Anyway, he was fine. He just fainted, and we carried on. Weddings have a standard script. Bride arrives. Bride cries. Groom looks happy, you hope. And, you know, Pachabel's cannon will be played normally, uh, or something familiar. And there'll be a sermon, mercifully brief, I find. What's new? You look down this passage, I mean, what's new? It's about sin, verse 23. For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's about sin. Verse 24, justified freely, justified by as a gift, uh, by his grace, the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. It's about grace. Seems pretty familiar. It's like a nice, well-worn teddy bear. I remember when I was doing missionary work in the former Soviet Union among some Muslims, and a number of them were becoming Christians, and we were trying to find out what their technique was. And uh, one of the Muslim evangelists, had been a Muslim, now a Christian, he said to me, we tell them that they are sinners until they believe it. (laughs) And then we tell them Jesus died for their sins. This didn't seem new to me. And I said as much, and then he said to me, Josh, you have to understand that for us, the good news is news. Not so for many of us here this morning. We perhaps grew up as Christians. We come from Christian homes. We don't live in an unreached people group, but in an overreached people group. What's new about the good news? Some of the reading I was doing this summer was Mark Twain. Mark Twain uh, wrote, of course, Huckleberry Finn and those kind of stories, but he also did a first-hand account of what it was like for him to learn to be a pilot navigating the rather tricky waters of the Mississippi. And he described how to be a pilot in those times when there was steamboat ships, you had to learn every corner, every turn, every bow overhanging the river, what it looked like during the day, know it so well that at night you could navigate every little twist and turn, the difference between a bluff reef and a wind reef and all the rest. And finally, Mark Twain says in this account, he finally had managed it. And then he realized he'd lost something. The sweet picture of a sunset over the Mississippi no longer was filled with romance. It was what that little twist in the river means, what that little squirt of water means, what that tree overhanging means, whether it will be there next winter or not. Make a mental note. Familiarity can sometimes blind you to seeing the preciousness of something, but also from realizing what might actually be new about it. So we have this text, for of shinned and fall short of the glory of God, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, a great memory 
text. And yet, we so easily miss its meaning. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it like this, we don't so much want a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. At the end of the day, he'll so arrange things we can say a good time was had by all, but we evidently don't live in a universe like that. We live in a universe where people die, where suffering takes place, where our grades may not be as good as we hoped they would be, where we don't always win our sports games. Not always is a good time had by all. And therefore, he says, we need to wrestle with our preconceptions of love. And we would add this morning of our preconceptions of grace. What is grace? How can grace not be cheap grace or permissive grace? When it says here that all have sinned, is that just saying everyone makes mistakes? Now remember the big overall theme of Romans. At the beginning of the book, Paul tells them his travel plans. <laughs> At the end of the book, he tra- tells them his travel plans again. And in between this travelogue is his magisterial description of how the gospel is God's solution to the problems of our world, that there is one challenge, namely sin, one issue, one great big problem, namely sin, one solution, namely grace. What's new? Let me try to show us under three headings. Apologetics, evangelism, and then most practically, our character. So our apologetics first. Most of us are familiar, perhaps, with the argument from design for belief in God. It's a good argument. You look around the world, it looks as if this world was made, was designed, and therefore, because it looks as if it was designed, it makes sense to conclude that probably there was a designer, the argument from design, famously used by Paley, the watchmaker, and many others since. But what we have here is no, not so much the argument from design in this verse as, well, the argument from decay or the argument from swine. I mean, verse 23 needs to be taken as it is, undiluted, unembarrassed, unmeliorated, and unbowdlerized. Full concentration. Paul says, all have sinned. What does he mean? Well, he's explaining his previous phrase, there is no distinction. We looked at last week. In other words, all of us of any race, both Jew and Gentile, Gentile that is all the races other than the Jews, every color, we are all sinners. There is no race that is more righteous than any other. There is no distinction. And perhaps that's familiar. What's new? What's new is what that means. Truly, we have fallen short of the glory of God. 
Glory is one of Paul's key terms in Romans. It means that which is excellent and perfect and beyond and above normal accomplishment. And so the glory of God is that which is excellent in God. In all things most excellent, this is the description of the most excellent of all things of which he is alone the most excellent. So when we say the glory of God, we mean the shining brilliance of God, the beauty of God, the perfection of God, the godness of God, the weight of God, as the word in the Old Testament has that sense of weight, the substance of God. So God is perfect by definition, and when we say the glory of God, we mean the perfections of the perfect being. And what this means is that what's new To be a sinner is not only to be someone who makes mistakes. It is to be someone who has rejected God's glory, fallen short of God's glory. So God's standard is perfection. None of us make that standard. But here in particular, to fall short of the glory of God in Romans is to worship that which is not worthy of worship. Paul's made this point already, chapter 1, verse 23. He says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the glory of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, this is selfie worship. <laughs> Me, myself, and I. Me, me, me. Sorry, did you say something? But there's a limit to self-worship, namely yourself. You can look after number one just fine until you look in the mirror and one day you wonder what all the fuss was about. I was on a plane recently when we were circling above O'Hare, the airport in Chicago. You may have heard of it, I don't know. Um, And there was a thunderstorm, and I've been in one or two thunderstorms in my life, some of you know, so I always get a little bit like, oh, wow, another one. And uh, there we were circling above O'Hare, and we got uh, diverted to Indianapolis, and then we took off again, and we were going to land through this thunderstorm. And so to take my mind off the storm, I decided to do what every preacher needs to do in that situation, namely begin to preach. And so the poor man sitting next to me, I started telling him about Jesus, you know, all motivations will do, I guess, at some level. And so I listened to him, I asked him what kind of church background he came from. Pretty glad he no longer went to that church when he told me about it, it was all rules regulations, and what you eat, and what you wear. He needed to understand the grace of God. And then there I was, sandwiched in between these two men, and there's another man on the other side of me, and he comes from a very different kind of background. 
he's a middle-aged uh, Indian-looking kind of man, and he's chanting a mantra. I cannot understand the words, but they're repeating over again. So we're going up and down, you know, next to me. I suppose he thinks that somehow in his religious energy he will be able to either calm himself or overcome the situation. What he doesn't first of all need to understand the grace of God, he first of all needs to understand that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And no amount of chanting a mantra will get him into God's good books. It's very difficult to have both these things at the same time and applied appropriately. Kevin DeYoung, who's a preacher somewhere else in the Midwest, puts it like this, I'm told, by another preacher friend of mine, the hardest thing is to convince an unbeliever that they're a sinner and to convince a believer that they are forgiven. We need both sides of this, verse 23 and verse 24, appropriately applied this morning, and it is hard to do. The unbeliever finds sin difficult to grasp. Douglas Coupland, who wrote Generation X, has a more recent book that's called Life After God, and he says, ours was a life lived in paradise, and thus it rendered any discussion of transcendental ideas, that is, big picture about God kind of ideas, pointless. And so here we are, we look around Wheaton, we're living in such an amazing place with beauty and possibility and opportunity everywhere and sin? What's new about that? What's new is it's true. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard called it the sickness unto death. It's really a form of idolatry. Someone told me when they offered a person options of a product, one that was good, another that was better, and finally the third that was best, the client wanted to know what they had that was better than best. And so we live in this place of great opportunity and possibility and resources and wealth, and we have an unceasing hunger for something beyond. My friend, you will never understand the grace of God until you understand that without distinction or fall short of the glory of God. I know it's hard to believe, but I used to play rugby. And at the time, I thought I was quite good. I, I knew I made mistakes, but I said to myself, who doesn't? And so I decided I'd go to a semi-professional rugby team practice. And I turned up feeling very confident, and then I began to look around. One guy had, I think, two teeth remaining. Another guy's face looked like a road map because of the scars, you know. Go to Chicago here, midway here, you know. This guy over here, his arms are bigger than my thighs. Another guy's just doing one-arm push-ups, and he looks at me as if, if I 
say one thing out of turn, he'll pull one of my arms out of its joint, so I'll have to do one-arm push-ups too. <laughs> the glory of rugby is big men hitting each other hard. <laughs> I realized at that moment that I didn't just make mistakes, I fell far short of that. The glory of God is love, peace, patience, kindness. In fact, in John's gospel, glory is all summarized in Jesus Christ and his perfect life and perfect death for us on the cross. You want to know what God's glory looks like? John's gospel says you need to look at the narrative, the passion, the death of Jesus and his resurrection. That's glory. And anything less than that is unacceptable because that was our original design and for whom we were designed and from which we have decayed and therefore we are, Paul is arguing, under the just condemnation of God. We have all sinned. Our apologetics to persuade those around us that this grace that we have to offer is not just one option among many but is the one solution to the universal human condition. Our evangelism. Obviously, this is a great evangelistic text, but how can it actually motivate us to evangelism? It can become hard as a church grows, as it has heritage. We now have five services at the weekend, Saturday night, three this morning, one this evening, it becomes difficult to motivate yourself to reach more people. You think, why are we doing this? Aren't we fine? Aren't we paying the bills and keeping the lights on? And it's a story was told of a young pastor who was trying to persuade a group of Baptist deacons to be creative in their evangelistic techniques and approach to their church, and he had a particular idea that he wanted them to adopt, and they were discussing it in the meeting. One after the other was talking, and it was becoming a little controversial, and the young pastor, probably a little unwisely, kept on pushing his agenda to do this evangelistic outreach technique that was on his mind, and eventually the young pastor thought, I know what I'll do, I'll point to the Bible. That usually wins the argument. And so he came with some text and explained how what he was suggesting was biblical, and he went on like this, and then there was silence in the room, and in one glorious moment, one of the deacons stood up and said, I don't care whether it's biblical, it ain't Baptist, and we ain't doing it. <laughs> I think of my neighbors and my friends who don't know Jesus and how easy it is for me to come up with motivations that will stop me from doing outreach. How easy it is for us as a church to come up with motivations that will prevent us from gearing the way we park our cars and have visitor spots. to the way we organize our seating arrangements, the way we smile at one another and welcome one another, to get outside of our introverted shells, 
how easy it is to come up with motivations for not reaching people. And yet here we have the motivation above all motivations, namely, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we have grace to offer. Our apologetics, a new argument, our evangelism, a new vision, the grace and glory of God, our character, finally this morning. Well, of course, verse 23 is something that is to give the Christian humility. No surer foundation for humility for the Christian than to remember that all we are is by grace, all we have is by grace, and we are all but servants doing our duty. Humility is no small thing, my friends. Jonathan Edwards said this about humility. It is the surest safeguard against the devil's attacks. Perhaps, my dearly beloved, when facing temptation and difficulty, you need to be humble enough to actually ask a pastor for help. I love to quote from Charles Spurgeon who once wrote an article on humility saying, humility and how I achieved it. It is the most slippery of virtues, but in many ways the foundation for all the others. The fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of self. Love, joy, peace. But while verse 23 is a sure foundation for humility for the Christian, verse 24 is a sure foundation for assurance. I want you to turn your Bibles to Second Peter, if you can find it. Second Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verses 5 through verse 10. This is the foundation for assurance. But there's a way to grow in our certainty of our eternal destiny, and Second Peter chapter 1 explains that. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For as you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then verse 10, if you don't, verse 9, if you don't have them, you're nearsighted and blind, you've forgotten, you've been cleansed from your past sins. In other words, the foundation is what we're looking at in verse 24 of chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Romans. Then verse 10, therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. 
certain assurance. What we are talking about here, my friends, is the kind of certainty that a Christian can have about what will happen when they die. Of course, we can joke about death. Oscar Wilde came up with a whole series of different jokes about his death. I think my favorite is this, saying to his wife, either that wallpaper goes or I do. Or Palmerston said to his doctor who just announced that he was going to die, die, my dear doctor, that is the last thing I shall do. And yet, the Christian gospel, the newness of the good news, is intended to give you, believer, such confidence that like the Silitian martyrs in 180 AD, you can stand in the arena and say, we do not fear Caesar, we fear God. And you can give your life for something that will last forever. This text means that if you believe in Jesus, you are right. You are justified, declared right with God. That means you have a certainty of eternal destiny. It means that you are loved with an everlasting love. It means that God rejoices over his people. It means that your sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. That is immeasurably distant one from the other. And all this is a gift. That is, it is free for the asking, for the asking. As Jesus said, no one can snatch them from my hand. All those that God has given me, I will lose none. This is the newness of the good news. The 18th century, the evangelical awakening, there was a renewed understanding of confidence, a certainty, and therefore they gave their lives for something that would last forever. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress has a picture of a pastor or his great heart. Love that picture. He goes outside the sanctuary and urges people to come in and says, no, you can, you can come in. Assurance, certainty, confidence. Not hesitatingly, not uncertainly, boldly, definitely, confidently, freely. So as Charles Spurgeon noted in his uh, 
devotionals, Moses' face when he saw the glory of God was shining at Mount Horeb, and yet it repelled people. The law came through Moses. Jesus' face after his transfiguration was shining too, and yet it attracted people. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Love bids you welcome, as George Herbert put it. Let me just conclude with a story of a man who came up to me once after a service. I'd been preaching like this for a little while, and he had decided he needed to gain that kind of assurance, but he could not find it. He said, I need to talk to you on your own, and so we went up and found a small little room to sit down and talk, and he began to unburden himself and described his his sin and I listened as he confessed and I didn't then come up with a whole list of rules and regulations and condemnation I explained to him the grace of God and we created a uh, accountability plan and all the rest afterwards. But in that moment, he understood he was welcome. That God had sent his son to die for him. He's now happily married and serving as a leader in a Christian organization. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, justified as a gift through the redemption of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. First, as we bow, let us confess. Even that, and then let us look up to God's amazing grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.